Just a note, this episode deals with some tragic mental health occurrences. If this brings up some issues for yourself or if someone you know needs someone to speak with, you can call Beyond Blue on 1300 22 4636 or Lifeline on 13 11 14. As a mother, I, I really wanted to give them a childhood where his absence didn't seem to be something that was in their face all the time, where I was struggling to be all the things to them. And, and, and somehow living in a community like Kidal, where there were so many wonderful families that kind of just adopted us and so many fathers who were ready to step in and, and kind of father my two, it was a really healing thing for us and it took a lot of pressure off me. This is Life on the Land, a Grazy Her podcast telling stories of women living in rural and regional Australia. I'm Sky Manson, your host for this really special summer series of Life on the Land, where the Grazy Her team pick their favourite episodes so far and explain how the story touched or inspired them or made them think about something in a different way. Hello, my name is Victoria Carey and I'm the Editorial Director of Grazier. When I was asked recently what was my favourite episode of our podcast, Life on the Land, it was a pretty hard, hard thing for me to decide. I thought about it for a long time and finally I have to say Maggie McKellar. For those of who are close to me, my answer is no surprise. I love Maggie's writing. She's a wonderful, wonderful wordsmith. I always really look forward to our chats about her next column. We love to talk about things that are happening on the farm, what's happening with our kids. And one of my favorite topics, of course, is when to get back on a horse. Maggie's ahead of me, she's already riding, but I'm still to do it. So really, really enjoy our working relationship. But more than that, In 2011, I think it was, when Maggie's story first went to air on Australian Story, I was touched, like so many other Australians, about her bravery in talking about what had happened to her and her family. The loss of her husband at such a young age to mental illness, followed closely by the death of her mother from cancer. I understand only too well the impact of early deaths like this in a family, And I really, really just admire her honesty and bravery in talking about that so openly. So Maggie McKellar, I hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Well, I was so young. It just feels like a different, I just feel like I'm in, you know, in a totally different, almost in a different body now. Um, Yeah, so we met through friends and it was one of those immediate attractions he was I thought he was fabulously good looking and incredibly athletic and he had a really charismatic personality he drew people to him and you know he's a very empathetic person and um yeah I just thought that the world was my oyster and that he was part of that so yeah we got married young and god I was only 19 when I got married it just seems ludicrous now 
Um, but on the other hand, it was also kind of fabulous because it meant that we, yeah, so we got to do a whole lot of things as a kind of a, a, a couple building a future. And yeah, that's, I guess that, does that answer your question? That's, that's who we were until he got sick fairly dramatically um, when I was pregnant with our second child. Um, and yeah, very sudden onset of um, kind of an acute um, mental illness and went from holding down a full-time job to being in and out of um, psychiatric hospitals and all the all the shock that that entails and and you know we entered the the land of the unwell um and yeah unfortunately he didn't make it which was just an absolute tragedy um and yeah he was he was being looked after and he was in a safe place but he scaled a wall of a, a safe unit in at manly hospital and which they have since made higher um, and yeah, put himself in, in in a impossible place to be rescued. Um, and yeah, it's still it's still kind of shocking to recount that story. Yeah, he was climbing at North Head and he fell. So yeah, um, I was six months pregnant, I think. <laughs> so so harrowing. It just completely I don't really know what to say like it just even though and interesting that even though you've told your story so um implicitly and in so much detail and so publicly it doesn't take away from what it actually is yeah and I still find it really hard to actually speak through the details like it's easier to read out the words that I've written and it is to retell it so I hope I've given a sense of what of what that was but um yeah, it was a really shocking time, but it actually feels like a lifetime ago now. And um, I was really lucky because I had an absolutely wonderful family around me and um, uh, they kind of just gathered me in really. And I had a job. I was working as a historian at Sydney Uni and I had incredibly uh, supportive colleagues. And so that part of my life felt fairly steady in lots of ways until you know, I had a beautiful baby, healthy baby boy, now 18 and on the verge of setting off to, <laughs> he's about to leave next week to go and work um, as a station hand up in North Queensland on the Gulf, <laughs> which I'm, wow. as all mothers whose children are set, heading off the, in the next couple of weeks will be in the same boat, just exhilaration at them stepping out but also that sort of oh, and wild bulls. <laughs> totally. Can you briefly tell me about the sequence of events after Mike and what sort of happened to you? And then we'll and then we'll talk a little bit about how you reflect on that time now that you can step outside of it. After Mike died, what felt like fairly shortly, but in actual fact was was a year. Um, my mum, who had been just the most like wonderful support to me, and who I had for a short time moved in with, uh, she uh, got sick very suddenly and, uh, well, she didn't get sick. She just had a lump on the side of her neck. It turned out to be a hideous cancer with an unknown primary and uh, we were suddenly swept up into this other thing where nine weeks, I think, from her diagnosis, she was dead. And it, it just felt so shocking. I had a, however old he was, I can't quite remember. He was very young and very busy. Um, I was working full time. I have two brothers and my older brother is 
for want of a better category, severely autistic. Uh, he has no speech. And so my younger brother was scrabbling, trying to get him into a care situation because he'd been living with my mother. So it was a really frantic time. And out of that, I took a sabbatical of a semester. I just thought, I can't keep doing this. And I was working to pay the rent and the childcare. just felt like it was crazy. My son was the busiest toddler in the world. I can remember thinking, oh, if I make the, if he sleeps in long enough for me to make the morning radio, if we, if I'm not, if I'm up late enough so that I'm not hearing the late night guys and over to the morning guys, then that's a good morning. Um, so, yeah, I, I went back to the farm where my mum was born and grew up and where my aunt and uncle were living and took six months off there, put my daughter into the local public school and uh, I didn't go back to Sydney after that because it just felt ludicrous to be chasing my tail. And so, yeah, I just stayed. And that was the best decision I think I made. This place was Kudal. And so how did you pass your days there? Oh, well, I was really lucky because by that stage I had a book out um, and I managed to get another research book. So I wrote, was writing another book while I was there. And so that gave me a sort of a sense of a project to do. And I was also working on a memoir. I'd had interest from publishers and I'd won an unpublished manuscript fellowship, which gave enough money to sort of take myself seriously as a writer and kind of use those skills I'd developed as a historian to write. And I had a, a sense of wanting to make sense privately, I guess, what had happened to me, but then... There didn't seem to be a book that, well, there there were a lot of books about grief, but there wasn't a book that kind of echoed my experience of being a mother um, and trying to raise children through loss without sort of that loss leaching into their lives so much that they were warped by it. So your memoir was When It Rains. Tell me the story of how that name came to be. (laughs) Uh, but yeah, when we were looking for a name, that it's a slightly long story. My grandmother was a wonderful, wonderful creative woman and she used to um, embroider. She set up the Orange Embroidery, was a founding member of the Orange Embroidery Guild and, and she'd stitch these things. And as a, a sort of an eight-year-old, I had to write a po- couple of poems we had to write at school about rain and I had written two, deeply affected by the 1980s drought Um, I'd come back and say my concept of rain was when it rains, I think of the good things that it brings. I think that was the poem that I wrote. And a friend of mine, when I packed up the house to move back to Kidal, so my grandmother had taken these poems. The other poem that I'd written was Dark Stormy Clouds Make Me Think of Children Who Live in Other Countries because, (laughs) bizarrely enough, at that time my father was immigration minister and we would have protesters on our front lawn because he had um, insisted on 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 bringing in uh, the Vietnamese boat people that was we uh, had bomb threats and kidnap threats and a whole lot of crazy crazy stuff happening at that time and he had shown and I'd been getting a lot of grief at school um, about how dare your dad let in these people um, and so he had shown us 
these photographs that he'd taken while he visited the the refugee camps in in Vietnam and seeing these children who were my age in with nothing absolutely nothing and and it was monsoonal of course so so yeah that that was the these two poems and they kind of I guess they speak to my joint experience of of both the drought and also that bigger um international story I guess um but my friend had said to me oh you should get these framed my grandmother had made these into cushions and she she um she had copied my childish handwriting exactly and so wow up in my kitchen yeah it was it's such a beautiful gift because I think the gift of it is that my words were taken seriously as a eight-year-old seriously enough that my grandmother would make cushions out of them I I guess Mm. um and so these are hanging in the kitchen and I just thought when it rains it seems to hold both hope for a future and also that it, you know, that it can bring floods and and also, yeah, so that's where the title of the book came from. So you've always been a writer? I guess, yes, yeah. And partly because of both my mother and grandmother recognising that. <laughs> yeah, I still remember the careers night. All I wanted to do was be a vet. That's all I had planned on my future was to be a vet. But at the careers night at school, my mother dragged me along to speak to the poor, lonely writer that was sitting at the table, the table with no cue <laughs> of girls to, to talk to her. I have no idea who she was. I have no memory. I just remember my mother saying, come on, let's go and talk to the writer. What about it being a writer? And I'm thinking, no, 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 no. I'm off to be a vet. <laughs> How interesting. When was it that you realised that this was your vocation, not a vet? I guess there was also my, it, that would have been my mother's influence. She was just, she watched me struggle through science um, at school and I made, I scraped into vet and then she, she said, let's just go. She took me to a career advisor um, and she took, we went through all the different things that, you know, what your strengths were. And, and I'd done really well in English, like with no work whatsoever, like i barely studied for English and, you know, did really well. That's where all my marks came from, English and history, just barely studied for them, did really well in them. Spent all my time trying to work out um, chemistry and physics and just barely passing. It was a joke. Anyway, so we went to see this careers advisor and she sort of pointed out that all my strengths lay in the humanities and at the last minute I changed to an arts degree. (laughs) Yeah. You'd already been, had you been journaling at this stage? Like were you writing? Was it part yeah. of the daily? Hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It was part of something that I did every day pretty much even then. Who, who was it that influenced your you, you to write? Did that just come naturally or were your grandmother and your mother also writers and creators? My mother would definitely influence me to write. She was always writing and she, um, she used to make up stuff stories for us before we'd go to sleep every night like I just cannot believe she did this because my older brother was so demanding like he could we couldn't go out in public with him he was just so you couldn't take your eyes off him 
so that she had the energy at the end of the evening to sit down and make up stories. And mine were always about me winning a ribbon at the local gymkhana. And my and I knew she used to get really bored with trying to come up with horse stories for me. Um, and she was always trying to influence me not to want to win, but just that maybe I'd be happy coming second or third because I'd learned some life moral lesson. But <laughs> my younger brother had a much bigger imagination than me. And for him, she would make up stories about him riding his motorbike with his toy, you know, his best friend who was a koala called Tommy, and they'd dig down and go to other countries. And she used to enjoy that way more. <laughs> but she also... Um, uh, she also she used to write for Kindergarten of the Air, and from there she wrote scripts for Play School. So she was, yeah, she was. She would have her notebook open on the kitchen bench, and when it was time for bed, it was time for bed, so that she could sit down and do her work. So yeah, I think she was a pretty big influence. Looking back on yeah, it, yeah, she was a storyteller, <laughs> and so are you. She was. Yeah. And how did you end up to be in Tasmania? Yeah, that's a funny story too, isn't it? So I did Australian Story, which uh, was an experience in itself. And out of that, rather bizarrely, my which my writing agent found hilarious, um, I received a number of, of letters from men <laughs> and she would forward them on in wads. <laughs> and I just... Oh, well, how sweet, but, yeah. Anyway, one of them was, the one I answered was um, uh, from a farmer in Tasmania who had been watching and had felt compelled to write to me because he his mother used to work with my father. And so that was, it was kind of like the connection that impelled me to write back. And he, it was just a very innocent letter saying there was no, he wasn't fishing for a relationship or anything. But anyway, I wrote back to him and that's how I ended up in Tasmania, very simply. <laughs> yeah the, the, it was just a correspondence that grew into a relationship and it, it felt like a risk worth taking to move down here and and try again did it heal you this new relationship or was it the life on the land that saved you I don't think a relationship healed me no um I think the healing had happened kind of before the relationship it was 10 years after Mike died that I moved down here. Um, so I was on my own for six years or so before. I think I've got the timing of that right thereabouts. Yeah. Anyway, I think healing arrived in being able to live on the land and out of that a relationship grew. I think if I'd rushed into a relationship, that wouldn't have been very good for me anyway. We'll be back in just a moment. But now a quick word from today's sponsor. Today's episode of Life on the Land is brought to you by Blundstone Australia. The iconic boot brand recently celebrated its 150th anniversary. An incredible landmark for the brand, Blundstone has a long history of making the sturdiest, most comfortable and stylish boots for all walks of life. Established in Tasmania in 1870, Blundstone remains 100% family-owned and Tasmanian-based and continues to be shaped by the vision and values of its founders and owners. For over 150 years, their commitment to durability, style and quality has not changed. 
The Blundstone range includes safety and casual styles for men and women and kids' boots that are easy to pull on and off when on the farm. Blundstone, tested by every generation since 1870. What was it about the land that helped you to go through your grief? It was the chance to see beauty on a daily basis, like to be kind of found again in that. Um, it was the chance of, of, of kind of rooting my kids in the, the, the movement of life and death that we're constantly surrounded to when you live on a farm that makes us really aware that we're, um, connected to that world um, yeah so it was having that opportunity to be part of a working farm again to play an active role in helping out um, to watch my kids sort of learn how to move through space and how to ride horses and motorbikes and and sort of um, yeah those those wonderful opportunities that kids have who grow up grow up outside of an urban environment um, and yes, yeah, so I guess personally for me, it's just, it was just living through the seasons, being outside of the rush of having to get to work, of having to fight the traffic, of um, the stress of juggling, um, looking after kids, like being a single mother and working full time. Yeah. And the timeless. It, it was a real luxury. Of the days. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just and just being aware of the movement of seasons, I guess, too, in a way that you're not when you live in a city. Um, yeah, that letting that be your timeline. Yeah, and then coming down here and being part of the farm down here, I really have really loved that. Really enjoyed learning. So I come from a um, my grandfather had a. British breeds, so a stud, a, a stud with uh, Dorsets and then pole Dorsets and then black face suffix and then white um, white suffix. So the world of the merino was a new language I had to learn <laughs> very much. So I still remember the shock when I watched a ewe run away from the land. Oh, I was like, what's she doing? <laughs> Shockers. Oh, it just doesn't make any sense. So frustrating. Are you wearing a Lady Kate jumper? I am. Yeah, I am. Um, Me too. Um, I know. I, I I think I want the role. That's my next one. I want to get. <laughs> and I got it. Um, was a great treat to myself. Um, and I just I, I emailed her and said, oh feel of it as soon as I unwrapped it it was so beautiful and it's meant to you know it's meant to be my jumper for good but I just wear it every day every day yeah I know <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly um me too so sorry we digress I did want to ask you about earlier in the interview you mentioned that your fear after Mike um had so horrifically lost his life of that the the way that that would impact upon your children T -t Tell me about the fear that you had of history repeating itself through your children. Oh, I had two fears. Yeah, I think there's a very natural fear that you think, oh, gosh, um, is, is 
are my kids going to get sick? Is this an, uh, something that is this a genetic thing? Or um, there's that fear, but there's also the fear of them kind of being marked by tragedy and and have losing the innocence of childhood too soon. Being and I think that was harder for my daughter who was older. Yeah, they've had different journeys through grief, I think, because she was really close to her father. He was really a really involved dad. And then she lost my mother too. It, you know, she was five when Mike died and then she was nearly seven when my mum died and both these really incredibly important people. So her journey is really different to my son who never knew his father. And so, um, yeah, I guess you'd have to ask them about that. But as a mother, I, I really wanted to give them a childhood where his absence didn't seem to be something that was in their face all the time, um, where I was struggling to be all the things to them. And, and, and somehow living in a community like Kidal, where so many, where there were so many wonderful families that kind of just adopted us and so many fathers who were ready to step in and, and kind of father my two um it was a really healing thing for us and it took a lot of pressure off me um and yeah so we did all the things that you do in a, when you live outside a small town you know swim club and um pony club and um uh, you know little athletics and cricket and soccer and i don't know we just it was just all the things that you do that that and, and so, you know, the kids are, that are constantly immersed in families and I don't think they really, you know, I think that that just kind of saved all of us. Yeah. Yeah. That's the gift. <laughs> it is. It is. It's the gift of community. Um, yeah. And I actually appreciated it more when I moved down to Tassie because I lost that. Mm. And my kids were older, so they gained, particularly my son, I, he was home here for two years and went to the local school here. Um, before he went to Hobart to school. So he, he was very much more a part of the community. And, you know, he had to get his head around playing netball. All the boys down here play netball. You should have seen his face when I said, well, you're <laughs> signing up for netball. <laughs> and, yeah, he's a bloody good netball player now. <laughs> he, he had to learn to play Aussie rules. And, anyway, it was all very different. But I lost a community, definitely. You know, it's... Um almost 20 years is it more than 20 years now how are you able to look back on that microcosm of your lives yeah it it I feel it's been really strange talking to you again and thinking about how I got here but I still feel it has shaped me of course massively significantly more than anything else but I'm a long way away from it now and I'm very much caught up in the day-to-day rhythm of life here um, and it's a wonderful gift to work with um, your partner to produce a product like we do um, I really love being I mean I just love being part of the, part of that I love being um, part of, of of the whole cycle of life here I'm really involved in the lambing season and and sort of love talking about what rams we might buy this year and, and kind of seeing the, the, the change, the way that our wool's changed. And 
I don't know. So that's a real privilege, I think, and it feels like, um, yeah, I've come down here and been part of something a bit bigger than than that life that I had, which was wonderful, but very much focused on the kids and the, that real busyness of time that you have um, when your kids are between the ages of kind of five and 15. <laughs> and yeah, does that answer your question? Yes, yes. And I, <laughs> I'd love to also know your reflections on um, grief and mental health in society. Of course, it was a time 20 years ago where there were different expectations around grief, albeit probably no, you, you say that your book had was you, your memoir, you wrote it because there was nothing like it. Um, but things have changed, haven't they? Or did you see that? Yeah, things have changed. Yeah, I can definitely see that. There's a much more open conversation around mental illness and also about the experience of supporting somebody through that. Yeah, 20 years ago, we were just right on the cusp of that. And now it feels like, and and I did a lot of speaking on the backside of that. And I still felt like I, people were looking to me for answers, like how did, you know, and I just didn't have them. And I still think it's an incredibly difficult thing to negotiate supporting a husband or a wife through um, a mental illness but there seems to be um, a greater awareness of it and a space in our sort of collective to speak about it Um, I don't know whether that makes it that much easier when you're dealing with it um, when you're the one having to negotiate it but I hope it does but it's still shocking. I still, I think it's still such a hard thing to support, to, to sort of see the person that you love be so changed and um, so sick that you almost don't recognise them. And, yeah, I guess to be able to say that, not that this happened for my husband, but that people come out the other side of that, that there is um, life on the other side of a mental illness and that that, you know, people can and do really successfully negotiate a future in that sort of return. Yeah, but to return to that question, it was my main reason for going on Australian Story was literally just that if I spoke about it, it might make it easier for somebody else to speak about and that if I talked about what had happened to us, that somebody in my position would know that there was other people out there living it and that there was the possibility on the other side to sort of to shape a life that was not that that although tragedy happened to me I still was able to live this yeah to to move into a a really full and fulfilling life you achieved that didn't you because yeah I I can imagine that you received so much correspondence as a result of the story going to air yeah I did (laughs) um but, I mean, the beauty of Australian stories is that they tell stories that is told in a really relatable way. Um, they don't try and sort of stick it in a cardboard box. or So I guess that the fact that I did get a lot of correspondence just speaks to the depth of that program. Oh, yes, and your story and braveness in telling it. It's so nice to it is so nice to be interviewing you finally, Maggie, because I feel like our trajectories have crossed paths a few times. And I listen to and some of our Life on the Land listeners might listen to the food podcast as well. 
And I just want to read you a quote because you featured on that podcast and um, one of your quotes was that home's not a flavour on my tongue. It was about a memory, a connection through animals and a connection out into and onto the land we live on. Can you tell me about that? <laughs> oh, gosh, that's what my book is about. This next book is about really is <laughs> is all about sort of um, I, I can uh, th- that was I love doing that with Lindsay. She's such a talent um, and just such a gorgeous person. I yeah highly recommend people going not necessarily to listen to my episode, but all what she does is so lovely. And I love that she's over in Canada and right now um, coming out of a you know big winter and we're here in the, on the edge of, end of summer. Um, I think what I was getting at and what I'm trying to write a little bit about is how. Um, how we come to know ourselves in place, like how we, how as you get older, you know, you can continue to learn the place that you live, even when you live there for 10 years or whatever, or 20 years or however long it is, that there's always something new to see, to learn about. And, and I think coming down here to Tassie has given me the chance to learn a new place. And I felt a real foreigner when I first moved down here, it was so different. I mean, this sounds so odd, but where I lived out of outside of Kidal, beautiful creek ran through the property. And, of course, as all New South Wales people who live west of the divide know, the, the, the creeks, the rivers run inland. They run towards the coast of South Australia, which definitely feels inland. And when I moved down here, we're right on a creek as well and... I kept getting the direction of the water wrong because like, we're right on the coast. It runs straight out to the coast. But I'd look, I'd see the water running and feel immediately discombobulated. I had not realised how orientated my whole self was to the inland and then to move coast was just, it was kind of like I had to learn a new way of being in this space, myself in this new place. And yeah, it's about growing older as a, a woman and letting your kids go um, and that next stage of motherhood, which was kind of a shock to me how quickly it comes around. <laughs> it feels suddenly um, they're gone and you're left standing there kind of watching them drive down the driveway. And for me that's been really doubly challenging, I guess, because or maybe just I see it more acutely because when my son was born, it was I, I felt like this is it. This is my job to try and raise these children um, without their father. And yeah, and so to sort of have reached this point in my life to where I, I've done it, that they're off, they're independent. Um, that transition felt like something that I really wanted to write about. So yeah, that's what I've been been working on, and and also yeah, just watching the. The seasons change here. I'm writing about drought and and how we made it through that drought and um, how that affects your mental health. Um, and yeah, how drought can feel like an illness almost. Yeah, so that's what my next book's about. What's it going to be called? And when's it out? It'll be out twenty beginning of 2022. And the working title at year of it came out of a diary that I kept over six weeks of uh, lambing season and it was a 
terrible. It was just one of the worst lambings we've ever had because the drought was just so dreadful down here. Um, and one of one of my jobs, which a self-appointed job, is to take abandoned lambs and graft them onto ewes that um, have lost their lambs. And so the book, I think, at the moment, it's called Graft Grafted, and it's about um, that process of uh, grafting ourselves onto place. Um, and yeah, so, so kind of taking that metaphor of grafting ewes onto lambs and you know mothering up ewes that don't uh, lambs that don't have mothers and ewes ewes that don't have lost their lambs and kind of so the metaphor of mothering is in that as well. So I'm not sure whether you know, books go through so many different. Um, <laughs> reincarnations but at the moment it's definitely called grafted <laughs> oh how good how many books do you think you've got in you maggie i don't know i think that i will continue to write always that's something really lovely about writing is that you can just keep doing it and that you keep growing as a writer i think so yeah i think my next book will be fiction because i've got a couple of fiction manuscripts sitting in the bottom of my drawer but I feel like this experience of, of this next stage of motherhood and, and of growing older is something worth writing about, especially the opportunity that I've had to do it um, living out here. Yeah, it's the coming to the end of a really significant part of your life and everybody's life. Definitely worth marking. You don't ever get to mark the end of your own life. Yeah, I think I was just, this article I'm working on at the moment for Annabelle um, Hickson, so it's for, um, and it's about, uh, <laughs> oddly enough, it's about the uh, um, boundary between public and private, you know, and um, how uh, I was just reading a quote that, uh, Jeanette Winterson, who's, I really love her. She's an English writer. Um, she wrote her memoir, which has got the best title of, in the world, is called um, Why Be Happy When You Could Be Normal, which was a quote from her mother. <laughs> <laughs> but I digress. She writes. What does she write? Oh, I've got it written here. Um, there you go. There's my my love process it. journal. Love it. Um, but, yeah, I just scrolled this quote down. She, Jeanette Winterson writes, um, the trick is to turn your own life into something that has meaning for people whose experience is nothing like your own. Mm. And I think that's exactly what I'm trying to do. Like it just seems that um, we, this, I hope my audience is both women, with people that that live the kind of life that I'm living because it's always hopefully wonderful to see your experience reflected on the page. But more than that, I hope my audience is, is people that don't understand what it is like to live and raise, um, you know, animals for food and for fibre and how that's become a really broken conversation mm. across our society and a real, and it kind of, yeah, just, it amazes me how much in the last 30 years we've moved from a place where nearly everybody had a cousin or a friend 
or some connection to the country where they would go and stay on a farm to a place where people have no concept of um, how a, a lamb chop gets to be in the in the butcher or in the the meat aisle of the supermarket and how that is actually a really honourable process in a country like Australia. Um, yeah, so that is also another reason why I feel compelled to write and that quote, uh, to take your own life and and um, and write about it in such a way that people can recognise themselves in it, I think is kind of the reason I try and write. Mm, building empathy. Yeah, and I guess another reason why I thought, well, yes, I will talk to you. <laughs> Thank you for asking me. <laughs> Well, I just, um, it, it's been, you know, it's all these interviews, all the interviews that I do are, are such a treat, but I just, I, I hope you have so many more books in you for that very reason that we're all so lucky to have someone who can contribute to society and conversation in such a way. It's been uh, really so enlightening to speak with you, Maggie. Thank you. I hope, I hope you can find uh, some some thread of narrative through our conversation. It's been lovely. Yeah, I've enjoyed it. Wow. I often say this, but I feel really lucky to be allowed such an intimate window into somebody's life. And Maggie's certainly no different. And I'm just so struck by really that she's just like you or I, a normal country person living a country life that's been thrown some really difficult things to overcome. In fact, she was a little bit late for this interview because she was busy writing an article for Galar magazine, which she said was late not only to get a phone call that morning from her husband to say that he needed her immediately to drive pretty much to the very back paddock to deliver a part for the tractor. And isn't that just a normal day for anybody, any woman living on the land trying to tie down multiple tasks at once? If you want to hear more from Maggie, we're actually going to release a bonus episode this week with Maggie explaining more about her writing. So her journaling process, how she sits down to write books and some of the things she might write about in the future. Thank you to our sponsor for this episode and series, Blundstone. Our autumn Grazy Her issue is so close. It will be arriving soon on subscribers' doorsteps. And if you'd like the same surprise in your mailbox, you can subscribe for yourself or a friend or both at grazyher.com.au. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another story of life on the land. Mm-hmm.